by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, starring Keanu Reeves, Halle Berry, Lawrence Fishburne, Asia Kate Dillon, and Ian McShane, directed by, once again, Chad Stileski. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're closing yet another film cast, the Baba Yaga uh, trilogy cast, which has been fun to talk about this entire series in its sequential order. I think you see a lot of things from film one to film two, some similarities, you know, simplicity versus, you know, expanding the world. But it's certainly been fun to talk about and fun to talk about Keanu Reeves. But we got one film left to do, and it's uh, 2019's John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Uh, It's been um, an interesting summer, which we're going to talk about at the end of this episode. If you recall, Matt and I did make a bet in the graduate episode on what would be making the most money this summer. And we have the results, and we're going to reveal those to you at episode's end. Who's buying a bottle, Matt? We'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. Excellent. But today we're going to be polishing off the rest of this uh, Hudson Baby Bourbon. Um, The first uh, bourbon distilled in the state of New York, according to the company. But this is such an interesting bourbon just because, like, you know, you smell a lot of bourbons and you can tell kind of right away how complex they're going to be, maybe just based on the smell. Yeah. This one smells harsh. It smells intense, but it like does like a total 180 on the palate where it goes down very smooth. Uh, yeah, maybe it's like New Yorkers, really harsh, but then once you kind of get into it, they're not such terrible people after all. Yeah, I, I, I got I to gotta piggyback on that. Actually, the, the guy, <laughs> you, really? no, 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 the, okay. guy, the guy that uh, sold me my, my car that I recently bought was <laughs> from, from New York. Oh, yeah. And it's it, just the way he tells stories, that kind of like fast paced dialect. Man, he was such a joy to be around. Like I love, cool. I love spending time with him, and he made the b- car buying experience very nice for me. <laughs> you know, I bet that might be a first on podcast that mm-hmm. you actually yeah. liked the person you bought your car from. Yeah. So okay, to a pleasant car buying experience. There you go. go Am- Amen to that. And maybe the end of the summer too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very solid bottle everything from the design of the bottle and again it had the like the red wax much like maker's mark which i (laughs) i had some trouble getting off but i eventually did it's it's just such a unique looking bottle in and of itself um that yeah this this is another one kind of in the slate of winning bourbons again we're gonna have to dabble in that cask one of these days matt where we pick like a rock gut bourbon and we just tackle three just total dog shit films maybe suicide squads in that cask like just some slogs to just like slog with our drinking (laughs) that would be fun actually yeah it would be excellent so you know the last couple weeks you know we've been talking about action films of course talking about john wick the franchise and we've kind of been taking a trip through the decades through the 80s 90s and now the 2000s, just kind of looking at, you know, what we consider our top three favorite action films. And man, it's just been so interesting just because of the genre totally changing in the 80s and then uh, genre influences in the 90s, like kind of grungy and a little, a little, a little punkish. 
and then kind of doing another change now in the 2000s a little more hard hitting and a little more gritty surrealist realism with some of the action films certainly some of the ones on my list so i think we talked about this off mic Mm -hmm. as i was going through a reminder a polished job on the films from the 90s that were considered action we're starting for me to see at least what in my recollection a change in the cop versus the syndicate mm-hmm. to the version of that that in the 90s to me was a little bit um, raw, maybe heroin chic induced. Sure. Like I always think about seven. Yes. It's kind of more mm-hmm. procedural cop drama. It sort of changes. And we get to the 2000s. There's still a few, mm-hmm. I think, very notable standbys. But when you start classifying action films, I think the definition of that genre has really expanded now mm-hmm. and stuff that like we were just saying wouldn't consider action films like you said the dark knight and i yeah. said x2 yeah um where are we actually putting superhero films maybe it's because we don't have a genre for them yet or it's just a genre in and of itself like to me action like to me an action film is very self-explanatory like die hard yeah. like i look at that and that's an action film it's no it's not a drama it's not an adventure it's not fantasy it's not horror action well it falls a little bit out of it but i it makes me wonder about rocky balboa yeah that's, i guess you could say that's i mean does it just have to have action sequences yeah i would call that just a sports film it's it's such a tricky balance like well, and i think this is what's important to me yes it is a tricky balance yeah. and the point i'm getting to in this is i think the genre is in a little bit tr- a little bit of trouble yeah i would agree it's yeah i don't want to say dying out but it is sort of dying out mm-hmm. and i think we're starting to see a bit more of life being currently breathed back into it. And I mean, the rock's a huge part of that. Yeah. yeah. But that genre is in real trouble in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. Fair. Well, it, I think it might be fair to say that the superhero genre is kind of biting into that genre a little bit. Certainly. Mm-hmm. But let's get to it. We're going to list our top action films of the 2000s. So, like the last two weeks, we'll do 332211. Matt, I'll let you go first. Okay, my third is taken. Is that 04? 04, yeah. Uh, it was so sleepy and no one really thought of Liam Neeson, I think, as this action hero. I don't want to say more of a dad, but, you know, coming off maybe like Love Actually and, you know, Rob Roy was years ago and he shows up in this movie and the conversation that he has as his daughter's being abducted at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. with put the phone underneath the bed, leave it, that whole thing. Yeah. Not only did that film spawn two sequels, which I think are equally enjoyable, Mm -hmm. it launched a wave of action films in the dead zone that became very profitable. Yeah. The dead zone is that period. February-ish. Right after the Oscars Mm -hmm. where nobody's going to see films. So it's stuff that's been on production company shelves. You know, I was bringing up Pluto Nash, which is a terrible example. But that's the time that that movie that you didn't know when to release it maybe gets put out. Although Taken is definitely not a Pluto Nash caliber of film, Mm -hmm. it started that, you know what, there's a a six-month window here Mm -hmm. that we should try to monetize, and let's do it with, I would argue, Mm -hmm. the second most loyal Mm -hmm. fan-going audience. First is horror, no question about it. Mm -hmm. Second is Mm -hmm. hard-hitting action. Yeah. And so they go and see it, and we did. Yeah. And literally on a throwaway afternoon, took the wife, we went, and we're absolutely elated with it. And not to mention, it's, it's just... It's really well done. And simple, too. Very simple. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of started like, you could honestly say that January, February is like the Liam Neeson like vehicle month. Yeah. With films like The Grey and uh, 
oh, that other one he had this summer, Cold per- or uh, this January, Cold Pursuit. Did you Light. see it? I didn't see that. Oh, one. it's great. Yeah, yeah. He kind of has like a knack for that. There was there was a couple on the at the commuter. There's been a few on on some trains and stuff, and maybe some airplanes here and there. But that's like kind of like his like area now. He's found a little niche for himself, mm-hmm. like this post fifties actor finding like a, like a second wave. Sort of fits into kind of the things you've been talking about the last couple weeks. Definitely. I like it. Number, back number three. All right, mm-hmm. three, Jesse, your turn. Three for me um, from 2007, Hot Fuzz. Uh, so this is, you know, interesting just because it does mix some comedy in it, but for everything that they parody in it from action, the countless references to films like Point Break and Bad Boys 2, and just kind of like the riffing that they do on action film tropes, like firing your gun up in the air and going, ah, like j- just kind of playing on the ridiculous notion of that in this quiet, like outside of London town. I think Edgar Wright's really good, like when he's on, like of mixing comedy with other genres. And I don't think he's ever been as on point as he was in Hot Fuzz. It's a buddy cop movie, much like a lethal weapon. But playing on those sensibilities of the action films that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. Great villain performance by Timothy Dalton. I, I'm a big Simon Pegg fan. I, I, I like a lot of stuff that he's in. So for me, Hot Fuzz is you're, you're gonna laugh you're gonna laugh a lot, but like the action sequences, they don't hold their punches either. It's hard to mix hard hitting violence and comedy together mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't seem schlocky. And I'll give you a nod to the Edgar Wright reference because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. very good at it. Yeah, There's lots of stories about what Ant-Man was and then the script that he had written for Ant-Man and then what wasn't, but it still laid the found work, the foundation for mm-hmm. a pretty second-tier character in a movie that pretty much kills. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's him. And that's, and that's him. And then he has such a style with himself between his editing and the way he shoots action, like films like Baby Driver. Ant-Man, that could have been cool had he actually stuck on to Ant-Man. The film turned out okay as it did, but I always wonder, you know, what that could have looked like as well. I, too, love Baby Driver, but Mm -hmm. that trilogy, the um, Hot Fuzz... The Cornetto trilogy is what they call it. Just... And maybe it's because it's just too British, and mm-hmm. that just never has worked for me, including yeah. Monty Python. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, and I yeah, think yeah. that's a good selection. Yeah, yeah. That tr- that whole trilogy just leaves me cold. But yeah, I'm, 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 I know I'm in the minority. And I don't really like at uh, at world uh, the world's end wow, as much. And and uh, I like Shaun of the Dead, but not as much as I like Hot Fuzz. Yeah. So I have issues with the trilogy as well. But to me, Hot Fuzz has always clicked for me. They have that bit where they jump over fences. Like, it's a parody on, like, that idea of jumping over fences in action films. So, yeah. That's my number three. You're going to really like my number two. Okay. Casino Royale. Awesome. Yeah. Jesse's the master of the Bond domain between the two of us. I'm the Bond guy. You are. (laughs) Uh, I might go so far as to say maybe my favorite Bond film ever. I might not argue with you on that one. And sort of what I just said with the last one, a lot of the... Daniel Craig as Bond has left me cold. I hated Quantum of Solace. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a shit film. Yeah, that's we'll talk about that. Spectre later. was okay. Nightfall or um, Skyfall. Skyfall. Nightfall. Mm-hmm. Skyfall was okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't ever need to see those again. But mm-hmm. Casino Royale is one that comes on, mm-hmm. and I will watch it every time it's on. Mm-hmm. There's three people that I want to specifically speak about, and this movie has one. Mm-hmm. Of them. It's Eva Green yeah. as Vesper Lynn. Yeah, Eva Green. Rebecca Ferguson mm-hmm. and um, oh god, the gal from Californication, Natasha McElhone, mm. are three 
women that I really like. We talk about the Betty Davis tier list that's yeah. not the standard traditional Hollywood it's beauty. A, it's a different type of look. Mm-hmm. All three of those women I really like in film. I think Eva Green in her yeah. own way is really, really gorgeous on screen. Mm-hmm. And the character she plays in that is terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's what I've always wanted in Bond. It's enough contraptions yeah. and enough uh, ancillary material. But it's also set in a casino. Yeah. And it, it just like a high roller casino. Yeah. It just fits. Mads Mikkelsen's terrific. But he's always good. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific film for me, and awesome. it's number two Excellent. with a bullet. I won't say any more other than, than what you said. Well, okay. Number two for me, uh, speaking on another uh, trilogy franchise that came out in this decade, I'm actually going with film two in the series, The Bourne Supremacy. This is weird. This is weird for me just because I saw this film in the theaters with some buddies, and I hadn't seen The Bourne Identity yet. Oh, wow. So I was kind of lost for most... Did it make sense? Not really, no. Yeah, no. But I kind of picked up on the story as it went along, but man, Matt Damon totally just kicks ass in those movies. Like, it's it's just such an interesting take on, like, a spy film. And I, I call that, like, a spy action in the vein of a Bond or a Mission Impossible. Uh, yeah, the Bourne Supremacy has always been my favorite. Whether he's beating up the guy with, with like, the, the magazine in, in the that's Jason Isaacs to uh, the car chase at the end, and just kind of the cliffhanger that leads into the Bourne Ultimatum. Honestly, all three of those films in that franchise are really good. Bourne Legacy with Jeremy Renner is not bad either. Jason Bourne's a steaming pile of shit. But this trilogy yeah, in and of yeah. itself is is actually really decent, but the second one's really always been my favorite, so that's my number two. I don't want to go too far into that because I could have made a full list of those three films, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to do that. I don't disagree with anything that you said. Yeah. I did see them in order. Yeah. Uh, look, killing someone with a newspaper <laughs> is so s- brand new and mm-hmm. unique and choreographed so well. Mm-hmm. And, and real it, quick, just kind of the villains and like the villainal elements. Jason Isaacs, Chris Cooper, David Strathairian, like like a great cast. I like I really like the casting in this these films. It plays on a man without a country mm-hmm. and there's a sort of nineteen eighty four feel to it yeah. and Blackbriar mm-hmm. and like yeah. all of these governmental conspiracy yeah. um special ops groups. Mm-hmm. And then we're starting in that second film that you're talking about to kind of uncover what his past is. Because yeah. remember, the movie opens up and he's picked up on a boat by a bunch of, I don't know, pirates, Six. essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't know who the hell he is or where he's from. And, man, that's a really nice beginning to the movie or that series. Mm-hmm. And I think the series does a really good job of progressing that story mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah. So what's your number one? Well, I mean, right on cue. It's the Bourne Ultimatum. Yeah. It's... <laughs> I've told you before that in Kill Bill, I really like the scene between Beatrix Kiddo Mm -hmm. and um, that little girl. Mm -hmm. I just think it's a recognition of comeuppance at some point based on revenge. Mm -hmm. And this movie also has that at the very end. Uh, Not to mention all of the other things you just talked about with the action sequences and a very clever plot. And look, I, I know the criticism is... How many times are you going to show up in a window across the street on the phone? And like, I but I love that. I, like, it, it's, I know it's kind of fun. It either like, works or it doesn't. You're not in your office because I'm standing in it. And then Moby comes. Yeah, in, Moby right? Extreme Ways comes on. <laughs> so I like that though. Yeah, I have such appreciation for. I also agree. Mm-hmm. The first three films are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the Born Legacy is pretty good. The, the fifth one's garbage. Yeah. Um, and we actually know a lot about the fifth one. We actually have ties to yeah, the some produc- of the production of group that, on yeah. that. Um, Very interesting. Yeah. I think you walked out of that movie, actually. I did walk out of it. Yeah. And my buddy helped make that film. Yeah. Or our buddy. Yeah. It wasn't good. It was not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Born Ultimatum, number one. But honestly, this could be number three on this list, and Supremacy could be due, and Identity. Like, I could have done a whole You could have done the list, whole trilogy. But that's just too easy. No, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. It's, it's, a, it's a great ser- series. Maybe a cask one day. Like, that would be fun. That would be. Good idea. Yeah. Number one for me, you already mentioned it. The reason I wasn't going to comment on it, because it's my number one, and it's Casino Royale. Yeah. Uh, to just kind of take yourself back to 2005, before this film was released, the announcing of Daniel Craig as Bond was laid in with the same amount of controversy that followed Ben Affleck and Heath Ledger and now Robert Pattinson as Batman. We're like, that guy can't play Bond. He's blonde. Uh, there was all these rumors coming out of the set that he couldn't dry stick shift, that he wanted to have like a gay sex scene and the thing. It was just all bullshit. And there was this website uh, called CraigIsNotBond.com that like they were the fans were so pissed off that he was playing Bond. And this is kind of why I have this propensity to Clive Owen too, because a lot of people wanted him to take over from Pierce oh, Brosnan. We get to it. Here it is. Yeah, and I was just like, you know what? Wait a minute. Just kind of give him a chance. If you haven't seen the film Layer Cake, Matthew Vaughn's Layer Cake with Sienna Miller and Daniel Craig, it's like his audition for Bond. Absolutely. Uh, he totally kills it. That opening black and white bit, I think you kind of got, this is a little different. Then you get the Chris Cornell song, and then you get that parkour chase scene in uh, Madagascar. And I, I think everyone after that scene was totally on board with where this was going. Honestly, Craig plays the character closest to maybe how Fleming wrote it. This being Casino Royale, the first book that right. Fleming wrote in the series. And it, other than the David Niven film and the this the... Uh, episode of TV that they adapted that to. This has never been truly adapted in the the Eon Pictures legacy. So that was unique in of itself. And it's it's this high stakes, you know, poker game, Baccarat in the novel. And Vesper Lynn, it's just, it, it breaks down all the conventions of traditional bond of gadgets and ridiculousness. And it really makes it more realistic. And a girl that just totally unshields bond, like, yeah, he has he has a couple flings with some women, but he actually meets this one that he's totally okay with settling down, and how that turns out is, it's tragic, really. Could we make a case that her death at the end of that film is maybe one of the ten best deaths in our annals of film greatness? Yeah, I could say that. Because he's trying to swim down, and mm-hmm. she knows it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And this is after she screwed him. Yeah. I don't, no, I don't mean physically, like, yeah. like screwed him over. Yeah, for another man. And... It sets up the next two films, mm-hmm. or well, three films, really. Yeah. And again, like that's a whole other story. Yeah. It was just riddled with such promise for me, mm-hmm. and it's. But in and itself, it's also just a great watch. Mm-hmm. There's not a bad scene in that film. After they drug him, and he's got to go take the shower upstairs to get back to the table because there's a time thing working. Yeah, so great. And Eva Green is so beautiful in that dress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that movie works on so many levels. Yeah, really. It's it's a great entry for Bond, but 2006, my favorite action film of the 2000s. And I was I after that I was like, I can't wait to see where Craig goes with this character. Quantum's a bit of a misstep, but I really like Skyfall and Spectre's eh, but I still kind of like Spectre too. Not as much as some of the other ones, but I've liked his tenure as Bond. We'll get one more from him coming up next April, hopefully. <laughs> but um we'll see where that leads us question for you go ahead if we put jason Bourne mm-hmm. 
Daniel Craig as Bond and Keanu Reeves as John Wick in a ring together. Oh, man. <laughs> and only one man comes out who wins that battle. Oh, man. Jason Bourne and Keanu Reeves or John Wick have like a maybe a bit better on the hand-to-hand combat. But man, Craig can totally take a beating, man. They beat his nuts to a pulp yes. with that rope. Yes. So they could probably beat him into submission. He might actually last the longest. So right. I don't know. I'd like to see that one unfold. <laughs> I think I'm going to give the nod to Bourne. Yeah. Just by a bit. Wick's really good with the weapon. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Craig's certainly roguish and garish. Yeah, and but if you're rugged. in like, if there's like a desk with like 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 a stapler, like he'll like kill you with it. Look, <laughs> Jason Bourne will kill you with the stapler. I found a moth. Now you'll die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's very resourceful. Indeed. Awesome. All right. Well, that's a great list. We're off to a great start. So let's get to our final wrap up. Cheers. Cheers. And our review breakdown of John Wick Chapter Three: Parabellum. John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, starts immediately after the events of John Wick Chapter 2, with John and his dog uh, just trying to get away or get as far away from the assassins. He has a one-hour head start that's been given to him by Winston before um, Accounts Payable makes the contract go live. And again, we ended with Keanu running through Central Park. And then here he is running down the streets again, just like again, that like weird lumbering thing. Like, and again, we talked last week. Is that like because he's wounded, or is just that is just that how Keanu runs? Like, so can I tell you that I went back and watched the beginning of his first running in the first John Wick? Okay, yeah, and it's not the same. Mm. So either he really did get beat up on set, yeah, or as crazy as this sounds, mm-hmm. that's really good acting. <laughs> yeah, because we're actually talking about it. Yeah, maybe it is. So um, it's just I, I that's would not how the man runs. I'm telling I, you, I wouldn't have brought it up unless you had brought it up, and I was like, you know what, it is a little a little strange. Yeah, yeah. so he's just beat to hell, and that's why. Yeah, he's gone through a ton in these last three films, which have all concurrently kind of been taking place over the, like the last two-ish weeks. Like that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think it's about a week? Two, I think two I weeks. Think, I, I do think too. so. Yeah, real real quick. So so the uh, um, movie starts and the clock's already ticking yeah and what i like about that is he's trying to get the pieces together enough so that he can get out mm-hmm. and what's the thing that screws up everybody in new york yeah traffic jams yeah he's literally in the taxi with about what six seven minutes to go yeah he's like he's like on the clock and already injured so he's got two things he needs to do he mm-hmm. needs to get to the library yeah and we'll break that down in just a minute because mm-hmm. i think that's really interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which by the way in the library he's going to run into assassin that's actually the former center for the spurs yeah Boban Marjanovich, yeah, that has arms from here to Texas, <laughs> um, and that's actually a really as as strange as it might sound. It is the Kareem Abdul Jabbar versus Bruce Lee bit in Game of Death. Right? Yeah, I think all the little bits in this kind of like opening act of the film are all very well done. Yeah, um, so he he gets the dog. He gives a little uh, token to the currency to the taxi get my get this dog to um, the, the concierge at the continental yeah so he leaves the dog in the car and he takes off to the to the library to kind of john has like stuff i feel like pepper just kind of all over town for like situations much like this where like 
if I'm caught in a jam, I need to like have some options to potentially get out of here. So we've talked about setups and payoffs before, and I think that I'm going to make the case that this is actually set up. If you go back mm-hmm. to the second film when mm-hmm. he puts the the guns mm-hmm. and the corridors under the streets of what is it, Rome? Yeah, they're in Italy. Yeah, yeah in Italy. And he knows like there's one here and one here. We mm-hmm. see that he has built, I guess, a safety net or a network mm-hmm. of things that he can come to rely on. Yeah, as he's excommunicado, he is. It's fair game, and it's fourteen, about to be fifteen million dollars on his head, mm-hmm. and there's a whole lot of baddies after him, and he's got nowhere to go. Yeah, I can buy into this too, but just yeah. because of this network of assassins, and because he, you know, had he, John even after retirement wasn't so quick to totally get rid of all his guns and past life just in case an instance came where he might need that. So. I can totally buy into where he might have this. So in this book is this kind of like, it's like a neck, crucifix neck, necklace and then like another 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 marker. And there's a photo of his wife in there too. So we obviously know that he has at some point gone to the library and mm-hmm. built this safety net for himself. Yeah. And I love that it's hiding in plain sight. Like all of these people from the Bowery Kings, Vagabond Assassin crew to the Continental, it's mm-hmm. all in plain sight, and it's just the disguise yeah. of commonality. Mm-hmm. I, I love that about oh, yeah. this. Yeah, this yeah, th- this is good. This this clicks and, and works for me. And he runs into this first guy in the library, and always. By like, the way, we're not a, we're not of the hour yet. No, he's still, he's, but this guy breaks the rules. Yeah, anyway. he breaks the rules. Like so, we're still within that time limit, and we're still ticking, ticking, ticking down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is great. I love fight scenes in films, or it's, I call it like the like the the brutish henchman versus like the little man like yeah. like bond has uh, a few of these in the bond well, fr- in, the, in the yeah in the bond franchise sure. and just to kind of see it, it is david versus goliath yeah well said and literally in this yeah and he, he just yeah uses the book and breaks his neck it, it's, it's all done very well and so again so now where the violence is like on point like as it has been all three films but um it's different just because there's that we talk about in you know screenwriting terms when we sit down and write and things like that about that ticking clock element and when there's like uh when we know there's a ticking clock like there's like i think there's the tensions even elevated even more like when's that gonna hit zero like expertly shown in in a film like high noon gary cooper well said yeah like it's literally taking place in real time until we get to the penultimate showdown where yeah it's it's time can be a very interesting factor when used properly in film another film i would say that did that pretty uniquely recently was dunkirk playing with times and uh, spans of times actually so yeah i'm digging this like this is this film's like not like afraid to kind of get started and by the way to high noon i got to tell you one thing about that yeah there's no question Mm -hmm. that gary cooper picks the wrong girl in that movie (laughs) do you want katie gerard or do you want grace kelly and i'm gonna argue it's not even close yeah he wants we want uh what's her helen ramirez mm-hmm. what with that if you have not seen high noon go watch that movie and ask yourself why in the world did he leave her yeah for grace kelly yeah i we'll talk about grace kelly one day but anyway back yeah. to this excellent a couple things are, are brought up with this book right so we get the picture mm-hmm. so we know that okay he set it up before yes and then there's another marker which we've seen mm-hmm. and then the crucifix yeah no quit i don't know what the crucifix about the other two have been established no. But we're about to get into that, aren't we? See how that plays out. So then, like, the final stop he makes is actually at, like... The doctor. The, the doctor, who I believe was in film one. I think he yes. was the same guy that came up to his room. Yes. Um, after his nightclub brawl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
he's literally getting stitch up as the clock reaches zero. Accounts payable sends out the hit. 14 million for Mr. Jonathan Wick. And this doctor's like, I you can't I I can't let you leave here without like we gotta make this look real. So John puts like two bullets in him to like make it seem like John like held him hostage to stitch him up. Otherwise they'll probably kill him. Right. This network, this syndicate. As we're going to see as it grows throughout this film, does that is that just a throwaway moment for you? I mean, I know you mentioned it, but is that or is there more to that for you in that? Because there is for me this like doc, the, the this way that he bit? shoots this doctor. No, no, no. I think it's uh, you know we've seen in all three films now just kind of the respect that these people have for each other, whether it's stopping short of killing each other because you're on hollowed ground or like uh, holy ground. Or, as we're going to see later, just like not killing the people just out of respect of combat. I think the same thing applies here. I think John and this doctor have a past and a mutual respect for each other. And I don't want to rat you out, John, but like you need, we have to kind of meet like at the same juncture at this point. Goes back to what we talked about last week with world building to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And two things in this scene for me are really important. One is, they have an understanding of a world that you and I don't know only insofar as what the screen lets us see. Yeah. And secondly, in that world, John has a level of respect and, well, you could say even fear mm-hmm. from everybody that he comes in contact with. If you're good with John Wick, yeah. then you have an, undoing, an undyingly loyal friend. Yeah. If it, you're not, it's curtains. It's a real mob-like mentality. Right. Yeah. Okay, you just took the words out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He is essentially, even though he's not at the head of the high table, mm-hmm. he's Vito Corleone. Yeah, yeah. N- not Fredo. Yeah, <laughs> not Fredo. <laughs> um, I might argue that, that D'Antonio and, or Antonio from last week might yeah. have been the Fredo yeah, guy. Yeah, he was totally a Fredo. Right? He yeah. was a Fredo. Um, again, but it's building the world and understanding mm-hmm. like this guy knows if you don't shoot me, mm-hmm. then they're going to come get me. Like they can forecast what the consequences or cause and effect are. It's almost like they've seen this excommunicado play out before. And, and like, it, yeah, this and is, it's, this but it's is, the first time for us. And that's why it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Totally brand and new. And I, I love the pacing of this opening scene. Like we're literally in the cab to the library, to the doctor. And then immediately to this next bit yeah. to like some kind of like apartment, like museum hideout place. I don't care because hands down, we, I don't know if we feel the same way or you might feel a little bit differently. This is my favorite action scene in this entire trilogy. This knife takedown oh, of these guys in this little hallway. It's like almost like a knife museum. Uh they're just breaking glass with their elbows and grabbing everything from like short knives to machetes to hatchets to axes. And they're just throwing them at each other. And John's just hitting people in the head and in the chest. And he's catching them and throwing them back. It is so brutal, but so quick. I, it's maybe two minutes, two, three minutes. It's a, it's a quick sequence. But damn, like it's just the, the way it's shot and edited is so on point like... Uh, Chad Stileski again is like he's that choreography is is shown here of being like in tune with how stunts are put together man it's I don't think I've ever seen it done better in this franchise than this moment literally at the end he grabs that axe and just and just knocks that guy out like it's crazy still camera so we can actually see what's going Mm -hmm. on Michael Bay Mm -hmm. and Tony Scott Mm -hmm. rest his soul so that's important because there's enough action around the characters that letting us be stationary 
is really important and I'm so glad that they chose the directorial mm -hmm. direction that it went where like just be still yeah and if we move the camera angle move it at a point when someone's like getting up off the ground mm -hmm. or an elbow's going through the glass not in the middle of um, you know knife slashes as we're tumbling yeah. through the air is like that's bullshit the only thing that would have made this scene like one step better was if it was all done in one take and i know that's hard to do super hard and i love action bits that are done like in sequential in camp like the the daredevil television series per season had one sequence that was done one shot all three of them are great yeah but i can't it's not going to bring this scene down because it's still it's just it's so badass and so he's literally trying to survive he's like i gotta get out of this place like everyone's trying to kill me and then immediately down to like some like weird like staple yard like i don't know where we're at in new york city but like where the hell is all this stuff located you yeah. know new yorkers i like i just praised you at the beginning of this episode tell me where this is exactly but it doesn't matter because this scene's awesome too he's literally slapping the horses on the ass and they're like kicking the guys in the face like when have you ever seen that move in an action film <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe for a minute in like True Grit with the stabbing of the horse oh, from no, Jeff Bridges, yeah, but yeah, it's <laughs> there's a there's an artistic element mm -hmm. in violence that I've always argued De Palma once in a while mm -hmm. kind of plays with and gets close to. Yeah, this blows that away. And if you look back to the early versions of The Matrix and you see where these guys sort of <clears> cut their teeth and when The Matrix was good and right, what we liked about it early on before. Mm -hmm. The Wachowski starship showed up and all that nonsense. Starship. Whatever. That's I think that's the last no. iteration of them. Uh, no. Well, what are they now? No, 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 they are. I know. Was well, the last film they did was uh, Jupiter Ascending? Ugh, good God. Yeah. So let, let's hope they're retired. But even though they had their hands on it, the guys that choreographed that <clears throat> did such a good job. We love Neo dodging bullets, mm -hmm. and we loved all the Mr. Smith fights. Okay, so this is more of the same... And you can have violence and there's blood spilled and yeah. that takes it to horror. Mm -hmm. This has that, but the way they are, like dancing in a sense, mm -hmm. is so brilliantly done for me. Mm -hmm. I can just watch that over and over because I just find myself thinking, how many takes mm -hmm. did you have to go through blocking this out to Probably. get that right? That, that's a Hours. It's a lot of rehearsal. It's you know the same thing with like those the lightsaber fights in Star oh, Wars. Yeah, like right. it's, it's a lot of rehearsal to like you know make it look as believable as possible. Yeah. But I like this scene just because it's like it's short, it's concise, but it packs a heavy wallop, and that, that's going to be a little bit of a deal breaker for me later on in the film. But. Man, like, I'm just so elated at this point. Like, John's just, he's so beaten, he's so defeated, and he's just trying to survive. And we're watching his survival in process and escape via steed, <laughs> horse, down the streets of New York, which that's, that's a very true lies like with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But, like, this is great. Like, the black horse, he matches his black attire, like, so perfectly. I would have liked to have seen, like, more of, like, this, like, horse riding John. But, like... So he runs up at a museum, right? Mm -hmm. And then goes in and through the catacombs of the museum to a stage mm -hmm. where he meets as her Angelic Houston as the director, right? Yeah, the director. So it, it maybe help me understand this, Matt. Did you kind of get the impression that this was maybe like assassin school, like assassin training or yes. something, or a, a front for assassin school? Because they're like ballet people, but they're like killing each other in the like they're like wrestling in the back. So weird. Yeah. It's yeah. She's sitting there in a mostly empty theater, mm -hmm. watching this ballet this ballet troupe carry out their performance or practice their performance. Yeah. But to get to there, it's just assassin trope after assassin trope after assassin trope. But again, mm -hmm. 
underneath the museum mm-hmm. we're also again still expanding that world to yeah. like here's a peek into it yeah and i don't know if we'll ever get any clarity i, I agree with what you think it's like where maybe the uh, xavier institution for sure. assassins the first class yeah sure so we get in there and there she is sitting there watching this mm-hmm. and now the crucifix matters mm-hmm. I don't know what this crucifix is made out of. I don't know what the significance is really undefined mm-hmm. other than it's in that book. So it has some meaning. And he has a marker medallion too from from, from this book, which, you know, that she's going to accept the crucifix as almost like a bargaining chip or a, a calling. I, okay. Or, or like a handshake, a green, like, I'll take that. And it, this isn't really, and it, you're right, it's not explained like very thoroughly, but it's enough for John to get safe passage to where he's going to go to. But there's a cost to this as well. So mm-hmm. he's got to give up the crucifix and then she brands him, mm-hmm. which essentially says he's out of favors. Yeah. Like there's no more do me a solid in this person. Yeah. But he still has a marker. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm just interested, like when we're kind of in this school of sorts, like, again, I kind of want to see like, how did John like go through these steps to kind of like, did he have to go through the same thing to like get to where he was? Like, it's just interesting. It's interesting the way the writers and the what they chose to kind of plant to kind of layer out layer the, the the world that inhabits John Wick and this world of assassins. You and I have talked a lot about the basement in the Warrens' house and the Conjuring and mm-hmm. all of the artifacts that they've removed from people's houses that are possessed. Yeah, and the limitless number of sequels that that could spawn. Yeah. Now they've only seemed to fail 50 times with Annabelle. Um, maybe one, that'll come again one later. Of those is, that was one, one of those is one one of those is pretty good, but like but again, you know what I'm getting at. No, so, yeah, yeah, like, like the, there's a lot of potential there. Mm-hmm. And here's the difference though. I don't want to say it's heavy-handed, but as we walk through in that first conjuring and see all those things like, "Oh, what's this?" and this vase and this teapot and here's this monkey and here's the suit of armor. John Wick at this point to me is doing the same thing and it's like I want to know what the story with the crucifix is I want to know about that school I want to know what's the story with his wife because I bet you his wife didn't die from natural causes I want to know more about the Bowery King we are blowing up this world Mm -hmm. in a very subtle and simple way but there is no shortage of entry points for story going forward and you and I both know and we're letting everybody out there know that's no small feat is it Change of plan. The Continental. Can you see that he's received by the concierge? Yes, sir, Mr. Wayne. Get down. You know, as we sit here and talk about what might be and what could be, we've banged on plenty of prequels in here. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, as we've said many, many times, what's unseen is better. Yeah. So I'll give you. You know, we can talk about like how Darth Vader became Darth Vader, and I don't think anyone really liked that story. So, yeah. as much as I'm saying this would be a good idea, maybe I'm arguing against myself. Thoughts? Yeah, and it just might just be who tackles the material because, oh, like, for so they every, do a good job, maybe for every Phantom Menace, there's a Casino Royale or a Batman Begins. That like, oh, well said. I think they un- they, uh, they they tell the untold story pretty well. So good. we'll have to kind of see where, where this franchise goes. But like, okay, so branded and now he has safe passage to somewhere to get him the hell out of New York. Yeah. Is this the, this is like the opening 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the film. Like, I just love the pacing of it. I love John's characterization. I love the beatings he's taking. I love how he's countering that with his expert choreography. 
I'm like so on board with this. And uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna kind of get on to it. We're introduced at this point to uh, a new character. She doesn't even really have a name. She's just known as the Adjudicator. Uh, this quality control person from the high table. Again, I told you last week, Matt. Why isn't this Carrie Ann Moss? Like, yeah. they got an actress that looks identical to how Carrie Ann Moss looked in the Matrix films. Like, just do it. Just jump head did head first into the deep end of this Matrix reunion. It's what you want to do. More on that a little later because it's even more apparent in the last act of the film. And even if they don't use it with the adjudicator, it certainly should have been. And I don't have any problems with Angelica Houston. Oh, yeah. It could have been her too. Yeah. So the adjudicator shows up. Mm-hmm. And John Wick has been branded and we're assuming is safe passage to God only knows but getting out of New York. Mm-hmm. And the adjudicator shows up to understand what's going on. And you know what I love about that is the <clears throat> stigmata element. Mm-hmm. So after talking to um, Winston yeah. and then the Bowery King yeah. and basically saying you have seven days mm-hmm. to give up your position. And the reason you have to give up your position as the head of the Continental or Bowery King is because you helped John Wick when he had been excommunicado. Yeah. Um, you have seven days. Of course, we'll see how that plays out in a few minutes. Then she goes to visit Angelica Houston. When did the Bowery King help him before he was... Because Excommunicado was after. He gave seven him... Bullets. When you give that, that was... He hadn't killed the guy in the Continental yet. I was a little confused in the movie. I was like, well, why is the Bowery King getting all this flack? I know he gave him a gun and helped him, but... Well, maybe it's because of that contract yeah. that Dantino put on him. But right. it wasn't an Excommunicado. I don't know. Warns them both and then goes to visit the director. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, well, this is probably the end of her character. Mm -hmm. But strangely enough, it's not. But but before that, uh, she picks up uh, this kind of like... It's almost like a scene out of it's like the it's like the noodle bar in Blade, Blade Runner. Right? I knew you were yeah. going to say, it, yeah. but it's this assassin named Zero, and he's got like two henchmen. He's like like this kind of like samurai-ish like uh, martial artist, and then they they do this stigmata thing to Angelica Houston. I don't. I want to know more about that too. So they put her hands together like she's praying, yeah. and then run a blade through both of them. Yeah, stigmata like. Yeah, and do you feel like as you're watching this, mm-hmm. there is an allegory, a non-secular allegory kind of running through it a little bit. The same way, I, obviously, okay, so, Neo becomes Jesus in the Matrix, so yeah. I'm not going to be that on the nose with no, it. No, 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 no. But like, it, do you feel it in this? But I feel like the, the, this franchise does a lot of things like this, yes. like a lot of like they're like steps in a process. But then we don't. They, they, we see it, but then it's never really explained anymore. They're, it's just kind of left hanging out there for our imaginations, or I don't know what, but. I'd like to know more about this process. Like, I mean, the high table and the Last Supper, yeah. the seven sacraments and the seven bullets and the seven cuts that the Bowery King is going to get, the yeah. stigmata. Like, the, it's very interesting to me. The and t- maybe it's just because my upbringing, but yours is similar. Oh, no, yeah. In that, like, well, it, I it intrigues know, me. I want to know more, but we, we don't get any more. Yeah, no. The high table, to me, it kind of feels like the Vatican a little bit. Okay, sure. We haven't really seen them. We've seen some elements of it, but like... Mm-hmm. She's almost like a cardinal of like the Vatican, and then like like the Inquisition. The Inquisition, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Uh, so John, we find out he's on his way to Casablanca uh, to yeah you know, yeah exactly. We're, at this point, we're like, well, where's John going? Like, why is he going here? And he actually meets up with uh, another assassin, Sophia. Sophia, played by Halle Berry. Halle Berry's good in this film. Yeah. And I I can't I was trying to think back to like the last film I saw Halle Berry in that I actually liked her in. It's been a while. <laughs> Monsters but, Ball? Probably, huh? 2001? 
Yeah, it's it's been a while. Yeah. But I, I think again, it's another peppering of a past, much like Adrian Pilecki in film one mm-hmm. and uh you know, common in two, like th- there's something's happened here that's left unexplained, but now they're gonna help them at this at this kind of a stage to to get him to another assassin who's gonna lead him to uh an elder who lives in the middle of the desert who's he needs to make a bargain with him now. There's a bitterness in Adrian Pilecki's character and mm-hmm. Halle Berry's character that isn't seen in common, which always leads me to believe that prior to John meeting his wife, mm-hmm. they were together. Yeah. And I, again, I don't have the script in front of me and I'd have to comb through the dialogue, <clears throat> but I bet there's a line in there that alludes to when we were friends or something along one of those. I don't want to say innuendo because it's not. It's not. But but there's a, some th- an allegory to a past that's relationship because she's pissed at him. Yeah. And there's a for. Because everyone else, even Common, likes him. Mm-hmm. So what's up with these women? It's just something in the body language. Like it's yeah, it's interesting. Like the body language and the gestures are telling a lot without like you know the screenwriters or anyone kind of like really explaining it to us. Which I don't know if that's a good job of writing or it's just uh, I don't know where I stand on this. There's an obvious one that I just didn't bring up, and that was last week when he goes to kill D'Antoni's sister. Yes. Yeah. And before he does it, she's stripped bare in front of him and completely comfortable as if it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And that hand-to-hand embrace before she does herself in or as she's doing herself in and then yeah. he finishes her off. Yeah. There's a level of intimacy there as well. And she brings up his wife. Yeah. And so does Sophia in this. And so did Pilecki. Like all of these women. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't think this is on accident. Yeah. Are a little scorned because yeah. he chose her. Yeah. Instead of them. Yeah. And so now we're working on another really cool level. Yeah. Because Sophia holds any future that John Wick might have. Mm-hmm. I just want to know more. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it, it's just... As long as it's done well? As long as it's done well, like, there's so much left on the table that's unexplained. Because we're, we're off to the next scene right away. Like... None of these films have had time to really dabble into that because there's the, the the that's not the story. But man, for some subtext, like I think there's more to be had there than they're giving us. Yeah, teasers, man. Like, what are you doing, uh, Derek Colstead? Which I got to mention one thing, and this is gonna play out a little later. So we have the same director uh, as film one two. Uh, he returned for this with David David Lynch and uh, Derek Colstead, who wrote film one and two solely wrote one and two with maybe i think some input from keanu this film had colstead and three additional writers and i think some input from keanu we got a lot of cooks in the kitchen on on this one and then let's talk about the differences too john wick one 20 million budget chapter two 40 million we're up to 75 80 million with chapter like it's, it's we're, we're doing so much more with each progressing film and i wonder if that's a barrier or a handicap for the franchise kind of getting away from its simplicity because we in film one with you know yeah Mikhail Nyquist and Alfie Allen we get the same type of seedlings of the Baba Yaga and you know John's past and you've just we get the same thing but I think it's just just done so off the cuff that it's it's it just comes across as simple. I don't know how to explain that further, but there's no. The- you, you, you said it perfectly. Look, the whole point of the first John Wick yeah. is I'm pissed. Mm-hmm. This dog reminded me of my wife, and you stole my car. Yeah, and it's about revenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, I would also argue number two is about retirement and mm-hmm. it like being out. <clears throat> we are starting to get pretty complex compared to those first two in story. Mm-hmm. 
and I'll go back and look at it now because I haven't thought about it. I want to go back and look at the credits mm -hmm. because as the screenwriting or story credits pop up, yeah. if there's that and symbol or a comma or the word and, mm -hmm. all of those have variations with the Screenwriters Guild yeah. insofar as who wrote how much. Yeah. So when you all are out there yeah. and you're watching story by or screenplay by and there's several names, mm -hmm. pay attention to the comma versus the and symbol versus the word and mm -hmm. um, or just dual credit. And because all of that plays into who ha who went back and hammered dialogue or who ha rehammered action, that all is changes in script. And sometimes you might even have to just go look on IMDb because they have even a, an, a, an additional credit for the uncredited writer, like right. who did a writing that didn't get any credit. So that's like well, like the our friend Stephanie yeah. with Thor Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Folsom wrote. Mm -hmm. Toy Story 4, yeah. which I think is brilliantly written. Yeah. I don't know if I love those movies, but that's pretty good. Yeah. But wrote most of Ragnarok and was in original discussions for the first iteration of The Sinister Six before mm -hmm. Kurtzman Orsi fell off. But you can't find her name on anything because... It, it's all uncredited. It's, it's all uncredited. It's like the work Joss Whedon did in the early 90s on films like Speed and Twister, like script doctoring. And we talked about it then it, that in episodes... Tarantino on True Romance. And episodes past. Tarantino even script doctored the film It's Pat, which was a Saturday Night Live show. No kidding. Film. I, I, swear, really? I swear to God, it, like it's so weird, but like... He was just trying to live in Hollywood, survive. Like sure. he hadn't become what we know him today. So I guess the point I'm making is I agree with you. Yeah. The story is becoming a little bit more. When you're adding a crucifix and we don't know what that means. Yeah. And as much as I wouldn't make this criticism, but I think it's a fair criticism, mm -hmm. so I'll cherry pick it. How many things do you need to have that you've set up prior to the movie starting that give you an out? Yeah. Or which is the library bit, right? The book in the library yeah. and the book and the or, cross or the stop marker. spending so much time introducing new things and explain the old things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, it's like we're mm -hmm. ex we're expanding, 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 and we're not like a little more. Yeah, yeah. Finish off, finish off this bottle. Someone's buying a new one. That's right. <laughs> but. And then there's an interesting franchise comparison I actually want to make a little bit later, but let's kind of continue with it. So they go to this, this, this. What's his name? Baranka? Yeah. And, and he wants, you know, for what John needs. And then Sophia and this guy, I think, have had a past before. Like, it, it, very interesting. But he wants, like, one of her dogs. And, like, she's, she's not having it. She's got these two German shepherds that are. They're assassins, too. So he goes to Sophia <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and gives her the marker and says, I'm calling this in. And she's like, you've been excommunicado. And he's like, you can't honor this or else you will be. And I need help to find a way to remove the bounty that's gone from 14 to 15. As if 15 would incentivize killers more than 14. But okay. Yeah. It's gone up to 15 now. And I need <clears throat> to meet with the head of the high table so that I can have this removed from my head. And she says, I don't know where to find him, but I know someone who might. Mm -hmm. So we had to meet, uh, I think his name is Barada, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts off as a pretty reasonable discussion between three bloodthirsty assassins, does yeah, it not? Yeah, yeah. And he kind of tells John, here's where you go. You head to this desert. You walk until you can't walk anymore. And if he wants, he'll find you. And if not, you'll die. And either way, you're going to die. So what do you have to lose? Yeah. And now we get to the crisis mm -hmm. or the conflict. Yeah. He says to Sophia, I want one of your dogs. She says no, and what does he do? Shoots, shoots, it. shoots it. The dog. What's, what's up with killing dogs in this franchise? I don't know, man. Like it's it's dark. Like it's real dark <laughs> it territory. Like you just it's like a no go. But the dog's wearing a bulletproof vest. The dog's a great actor. He he, he takes he, <laughs> no. Yeah, he, you he, did not. That's he, good. He takes he takes the bullet and plays dead, and then like 
Sophia like sees like the, the bullet squib like in the bulletproof thing, and then they're in attack mode. They like chomp his dick off, or I don't know what. Yeah. But now we're in the full John Wick action bit where it's it's gun fu at its finest with these dogs. Now these dogs are just as great assassins. They're like Sophia. She like points and like they go like attack the guy, or they like. I love that scene too, and one of them like. They used, like, it was either her back or one of the henchmen's back to, like, leap up to the second level oh, of, like, yeah. some terrorist. Runs up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was great. I think it's off Wick. He bends over and it runs up and ramps up his back. That's so awesome. Yeah, that was cool. So, I, I dig How all- creative is that? Yeah. That's such a great, that's an artistic way to do violence, man. I don't, I don't think this, this film's short of creativity, like... I think they're thinking of like, well, we did this in film one and film like what's we got to like do something different with these action bits a little bit. And I really like Sophia and these dogs and this thing. Like I thought she was going to kind of be a part of this story for like the rest of it. And but no, she just drops them off in the desert and uh, Marker's been fulfilled. She I, puts her blood on there and I, drops him off in the hot. I love how she she drinks the rest of the water bottle and like leaves him none of it. Like, oh, no, but she has one little swish left that she's. Swishes yes. around her mouth and spits it back. Yes. The backwash. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. That's like there's like there's like there's something there that I I want to know and I want to know more like see more of this character. But say goodbye to Halle Berry because we're off to the desert now. It's okay. Right. She she served her purpose yeah. and she was good in it. But I think she could have been a viable asset later when we get into the final film's act. This kind of continental takedown. Mm-hmm. I think she could have played a part there too. Like, but. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. So he what, does the desert walk, collapses, and then but then he's brought by uh, by this elder. It's like basically a Bedouin priest. It is what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, re- really interesting. Yeah, it's it's almost like it's like a scene that, like in the Aladdin, like yeah. this kind of setup here. I'm gonna tell you. Um, I know that you're gonna have some issues going forward with this film. I'm not sure. I entirely buy. That this Assassin's Guild is run by the head of this high table who exists in the middle of desert under some canopy and adjudicates from that place with no ability to communicate. Like, this troubled me a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't a deal breaker. But why the middle of nowhere? I just... It's I, like... For all the good choices that they make, Angelica Houston in the bottom of this museum and the knife bit that you brought up, like, he's there's just, literally he's, nothing there. He there's, should have been on a boat in, like, the middle of the Mediterranean or something, like... Yeah, yeah. All of those other things drive the story forward. Again, for me... What can you do to move the story forward? And this, it actually feels like we're actually touching the brakes and slowing the momentum down. Mm-hmm. I get if he was peaceful, but then it should be like in the Himalayan mountains and it should be some uh, Dalai Lama kind of thing. This is just... Very Batman Begins like. <laughs> in the fucking middle of the desert yeah. in 95 on a cool day temperature, there's no way this guy is running the high table from that position. I don't buy this part. Yeah. doesn't kill the movie for me, Yeah, but... I think this is, for me, the first palatable misstep yeah. in this franchise. I wouldn't want this detail either. Like, if they get to be in the cushy, like, Japanese, like, air-conditioned room, and I got to be out here in the middle of the desert? Like, There's so many other places that we could do it. Like you said, on a boat in the Mediterranean. I guess. Any number of places. And then it's a suspension of disbelief. Like, we've talked about that, too. Like, John's already gone through the ringer, like, in this first 45 minutes of this film, and now he's got to walk parched dehydrated in the middle of this desert like i'm kind of it's a bit of a stretch like especially when the reason that he goes to morocco or casablanca morocco to meet halle berry is she's the um what do you call it the direct not the director the 
um, overseer of her continental hotel there. Mm -hmm. So we've already created in these continental hotels that are global. We've seen one in New York. We've seen hers. We've seen the one in Rome. Mm -hmm. Why isn't there one that's the big one that this guy lords over? I don't know. And because... Let's, again, suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Do you really think in the middle of this desert with 200 miles of nothingness that he's going to know that John Wick has passed out at latitude and longitude X and Y? There's no way. No. There's no cell service out there. So put him in a hotel that serves the same purpose. Yeah. Or a place that, like you said, the Vatican. Why are we not in the bowels of the Vatican? That'd be cool. Sure. Yeah. Misstep. Mm-hmm. Okay, go. But they, he comes with, with that marker to... He wants to earn back the memory of the love he once had with his wife. And, you know, the elders are willing to grant him this. But only if he assassinates and kills Winston and then agrees to serve the high table until his death. Like, man, John is just so deep in the weeds in this thing now. Like, this, So... He was, but he was all the way out. Now he's yeah. not out at all. But I, I like the imagery. Like you know, in film one, it was the dog in the car. Film two, it was that picture. And now in film three, it's this wedding ring that he literally has to lop off his finger. Oh, yeah. It wasn't enough to just take it off and just give it to him. He's got to cut the finger off. That symbol of I don't want to be cheesy, but the symbol of love, like literally, like the vein of blood that leads to the heart. Like yeah. he's got to lop it off, and in order to like literally get a foot back into this to. To survive, like I like, I I don't like where it's at, but I like this moment. Like, yeah, and it's consistent because yeah. everything has a cost in this movie. Mm-hmm. Every decision you make has consequence. Mm-hmm. There is no uh, Brian Singer, Superman, destroy all of Metropolis. Buildings come down with no collateral damage. It isn't the death of you. You faceless mean you mean Zack Snyder? Zack Snyder. <laughs> Sorry, Zack Snyder. It's not the death of. Faceless stormtrooper all behind the same mask. There is no fodder. There is an expense to every single decision that Wick and the, his supporting cast engages in. And I've, as much as I'm banging on the scene, I also like. No, this. it's great. It's it's set in the wrong location, but the scene itself plays well. So John arrives back in New York, and a scene very reminiscent from the last film, like coming back to New York with Common chasing him on the subway. He runs into Zero and like. Grand Central Station, and they kind of have this showdown, and John's able to like sidle away with this crowd. I, that was that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. But then we get this cool bit on these motors, this like motorcycle chase, like with like it's like samurais on motorcycles. It's it, it, that's pretty cool. Like again, it we haven't seen it yet. It's refreshing. Um, I wanted a little bit more, but I, I, I'm still here. Like I'm I'm still chugging along, and yeah, we just props to. Colstead and Stileski and Keanu Reeves for you know just coming up with like great staging mechanisms for these action bits like like really good yeah I can't say it any better mm-hmm. that's another whether it's the horse through the streets or the motorcycles with mm-hmm. samurais like we're or the knives like we have seen cool action bits that are new exactly so, yeah, yeah no so, need to go further so we're gonna get to the kind of the crux of this of this confrontation now John meets with Winston. And the adjudicator shows up and we kind of get this kind of showdown where Winston's not going to give up the Continental, his grounds in this assassin's world. John's not going to kill Winston. So the adjudicator's like, well, you're, you're all fucked now because I'm, I'm deconsecrating this property. It's no longer a safe haven and good Whatever luck. Whatever happens, happens. Good luck. Yeah, yeah, good luck. 
So it's two buses show up, right? Yeah, like two buses, and okay, so this is interesting. So we mentioned the weeks pass out. John's just so expert at headshots, and these guys they got like armor plated helmets. So as the scene progresses, and real quick, I want to kind of bring the Matrix symbolism and parallels just kind of a, a little back to the forefront. The, the scene there, we literally have like that matrix bit where there's like this like safe, like pa- I'll call it a panic room. It's like a literally a safe bank vault with a room full of guns and Sharon, uh, Lance Reddick's going to like help him in this. Mm-hmm. But they have the newest like handguns and rifles and automatic weaponry available. And they take that line from the matrix. What do you need, John? Guns. Lots of guns. Yeah. So, riffing the matrix again but then also in the, so imagine so the 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 end sequence of the matrix starts with that lobby gunfight between neo and trinity with these guys in armor swat team attire now we're in the lobby of the hotel with these guys in armor swat team attire and the matrix like color scheme was like greenish hues literally the neon lighting is green, green. like the, the the what they're trying to do here is just it's I know what the, what 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 they're doing here, and I, I don't know what 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 I what I how I feel. I don't know if I dislike that or if I think that's just like a nice clever nod. But like this film compared to the others, feels like they're really trying to like make those parallels to where the guys that made the Matrix, and I I don't feel like they need to do that really. I mean they've they've staked in their claim in the last two films of doing like these catacomb scenes, and I I haven't seen these same parallels in the other two films. I don't know why they're jumping out out to me now. Yeah, so I don't know if that's a criticism like you're saying or not. Um, it's fair. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think is interesting about this is it's another, as you'd say, gun-fu scene. Mm-hmm. But it's changed. Yeah. So now it's you can't kill them from distance. He has to get right up on them and literally put the nozzle of the gun to, like, pick- against their body. Mm-hmm. So that it can pierce this armor. Like behind the neck, like where like the skin's showing, like everything else is covered, but like that part. So he's got to like pull the helmet like, and so, shoot. The odds are really stacked against him. And again, we're seeing what a master at the craft John is because mm-hmm. he's able to do that. I think he wipes them all out except for two. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty interesting sequence because he doesn't have any of that armor other than what his suit would have. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. way undermanned yeah. again. But comes through but Otherwise, then, there's no more movies so yeah he comes through yeah exactly no no more movie but they like i gotta wonder like what's john's like blood level at this like <laughs> he's taking a walloping through this 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 film and if we're coupling that with the one and two taking place in a short vicinity like i would have i wouldn't have made it out of like the first 30 minutes of film one like this man has truly gone through the gauntlet of these assassins like in this world but let's get right to it this is i'll probably just say this is your favorite part of the film it is um but i'll let you explain it so winston and sharon are basically using john for their livelihoods because everybody's in in play now and we get to the showdown between um the the samurai guy that nero hired what's his name zero zero and his cronies in a very Enter the Dragon-like sequence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to argue that this is actually set up because he has a meeting with Winston in a glass table, mm-hmm. and that's to see yeah. that nobody's pulling anything out of their pocket, unbeknownst to you, under the hiddenness of the table. It's like Winston's office, too. Like, so this is a glass yeah, room. So you can see what everybody's doing, mm-hmm. and there's various levels. Yeah. And on each one of the levels, mm-hmm. John is ascending 
to get to zero. Mm -hmm. Each one of the levels has its own different fighting assassin type guy. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is a really arduously long scene for you. Mm -hmm. And I can't argue that it's long. It's probably 20 minutes. But what what, what doesn't bother me is... How well choreographed yeah. that scene is. And so that buys off the time element for me. And it's not the same punch, punch, duck, punch, but it's different I know, in each yeah. level. And there's there's the use with like swords katanas, and we get to see John use a, like this knife. We really haven't seen that yet. Oh, I won't argue with there that it, I think it's like it's like a beautiful dance. It's it's so well choreographed, and I can't imagine the time that went into just blocking those sequences, which is that's hard too. So you and I are flipping roles here because usually the production guy and the the nod to production, and I'm usually the yeah. Why is the story? And we're in different roles right now. Like I can appreciate <laughs> yes, this is funny the level of the production that went into this yeah. and how difficult this was to do. Yeah, I can. I'm not kidding you, Jesse. Yeah. I can watch that over and over yeah. and over and not get sick of it. Yeah. I just think it's really, really well done, and yeah. I find myself thinking. The punishment yeah. that this man is taking, not only as a character, mm-hmm. but in the shooting. Because he's doing his... Keanu Reeves is 50 plus. Yeah. And as a guy that's in that neck of the woods, yeah. I can tell you, holy crap. Yeah. And he's not even in great shape anymore. Like when he takes his shirt off, yeah. you can tell Keanu hasn't spent the last 15 years in the gym. No, yeah. He's just a guy. Yeah, he's just... Dad a, body. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect way to and describe he, it. And that's... I have so much respect for the movie yeah. and the production and Keanu Reeves in this because to pull that shit off with knees and backs and ankles and all of the things that come with age mm-hmm. and to do it as he did, it's he's literally, this is, sounds stupid, but mm-hmm. he's living his values as actor and character. And I just think it's, I think it's I'm not gonna beautiful. Argue, I'm not going to argue with any of that. And Matt and I are okay. doing like, we've done like a Freaky Friday moment here. Yep. Or like we've switched bodies. But... I get the design of it. It's very beautiful. And, but, but we had a mere bit in the last film. And whether we're referencing Enter the Dragon or we're doing Game of Death with levels and tiers, like literally very video game-like. Yeah. At this point in the film when we've just had, we have the knife bit and we, the horse and like, and the, the, the Casablanca Chateau and everything. Like, this is the longest film in this franchise. It's two hours and 15, I believe, in that ballpark. It's the, the 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 longevity and the stretching out of these action bits is starting to wane on me a bit, and maybe that's just because like the effect of the how brilliant I've seen them played out in there is like I've seen this done before, and I'm just waiting for John to eventually best these men. Which again, you just said it earlier. If John dies, there's no movie. So I guess this is the suspense of that is kind of killed for me because I know he's gonna. And these guys, I'm just, I'm just waiting for when. I would have rather have had just one of these sequences on that level with like, it was like the glass armors or whatever, with zero versus having to go through three levels and 25 minutes of this. It's a little exhausting for me, and I'm not a guy that shies away from violence and action bits. Like I'm the other biggest Bruce Lee fan you'll you'll ever find. Like I love this kind of stuff, but where there's less, there's more. And I think when this franchise has been on point is when they've been a little more contained. This is a little more self-indulgent on an action choreographed bit. We did all about self-indulgence with Tarantino. It's just it just feels different for me if you if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like in the Bruce Lee uh, viewing experience that you've had 
that it gets sometimes to be a little tedious. In a there little too. bit. Game of Death is a little tedious. It's as is Enter the Dragon right. and some is Jackie Chan's fair. Like I can totally respect the craft of martial arts. Yes. And it's almost like that's a like a sport and less of like film like a film sequence. Like it, uh, there's act- only so many times we can watch elbow impact on sternum, yeah. backhand, right hand to nose to follow as you like. It, it gets it the, gets played out. There's such a difference between like sequences like this in this film and like the tournament in the Karate Kid because of the way it's paced out so quick, right? Yeah, and I think the story still like we're we're getting towards something. We're getting to something in this one, but I don't know. Just the pacing's just it's so different. So for everything that Enter the Dragon is with the mirror sequence at the end, and I like that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that I like that yeah. scene. I can't see that yeah. as this landmark moment in cinema. Yeah. Because after about four minutes, preceded by an entire film of not in mirrors, but the same thing. Yeah. It's it's exhaustive. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with yeah. you that this is exhaustive. Yeah. What buys that off for me mm-hmm. is that... Each level is done with a different weapon, and the choreography then suits that weapon. And watching them parse, dodge, duck, parry as seamlessly yeah. as they do as they do makes it infinitely rewatchable. I just wish it was done quicker. Each one's like seven and a half to eight minutes, and if you've never stop watched film scenes in movie that's a seven and a half to eight minutes is a long time in a movie like four minutes in a scene is a long time so yeah so i just wish this scene was a little more condensed cut down and i think i would i would buy it a little bit more so eventually I, okay yeah so he ascends all the levels beats the bad guys and we get to the inevitable showdown with zero yeah ultimately to defeat zero and i will remind you earlier mm-hmm. this is a little bit different because zero almost bested him earlier in the film and had John not reached his hand out and put it on the steps of the Continental, I think Zero had him earlier. Much like Common and Wick in the second film. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. He, he bests Zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we are to what we think is the end of the film. Yeah. And we get the adjudicator meeting with Winston. On the, the patio rooftop of the Continental. And we're assuming at this... By the way, she's already cut the Bowery King to ribbons, Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. And we see him a little bit later and what the results of that are. But he's... I thought he was dead. Me too. Yeah. And I think that's the idea. Okay. Seven cuts for seven bullets that he gave John Wick. And they cut him to ribbons. Mm -hmm. So now it's, okay, Winston's turn. Mm -hmm. And what Winston does is he pretty smartly Mm -hmm. and deftly buys off the adjudicator. A parlay is what they call it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Call it a parlay. Mm -hmm. That... What he was showing was a, a show of power. What mm-hmm. this was was a strength of power, a show of power, mm-hmm. a show of strength. And you shouldn't use this against me. You should revel in this because it reaffirms just how powerful the legacy of the Continental is. And she buys it. Mm-hmm. But as they're going through this parlay and having the negotiations, who shows up? John. John. John, to further kind of complicate, you know, the situation, you know, kind of showing that. You know, he's made this bargain, this parlay, but John is still a threat. So what does Winston do? He immediately goes into, uh, like, attack shoot mode. And this is an interesting sequence just because I don't know if Winston's, like, truly trying to kill him or just trying to give him enough time. But I got to tell you, this is the most alarming point in the film for me. And I have a lot to say about it. I got my notes over here. Well, go, yeah, I want to hear it. How tall is this continental 
12 floors, 15 floors. Okay. Okay, Michael I, Myers. Okay, listen. I, mean, I know. But John literally... To, and he's gone through the gauntlet of three films to this point and just beaten, bloodied, and bruised to survive. And I'd probably do the same thing, but I'm not going to walk away from this. Literally <laughs> throws himself off the roof of this building and smashes into three stairs and roofs on the way to land face floor on the pavement of this alley. Matt, so, Matt no, uh, no, let me ask you a question. Does he throw himself off or is he shot off? I don't know if it matters. I, but... I don't know. I, I I thought he maybe had like kind of like leaped himself off the okay. roof or maybe the just the propellants of the bullets pushed him off. Okay. I just am curious. All right. Because I, I took that as Winston shot him off. Yeah. And either way... I keep going. I don't want to interrupt you. Keep going. Either way, does isn't going to kind of conclude no. with where I'm going with this. Right. I I just can't believe that this human man that we're established that we're in a human world and people die by headshots mm-hmm. is able to fall off this roof of this hotel and no spoilers. So it's the end scene. Survives. Ah, uh, Matt. I had a real hard problem with this sequence and. I don't want to call it yet the jumping of the shark moment for everyone that doesn't know the happy days jumping Fonzie literally jumping with jet ski over a shark where that show just died after that. Which is where you take a left turn and it's so completely unsurmisable with what the script and story is set up. Yes. Okay. Right. And I don't, I, 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 I know what this is. I know how Hollywood works. Hollywood's a machine of money. And this Lionsgate studio and Colstead and Stileski and maybe Keanu Reeves know that they have a winner here. Look, Matt, this film is the highest grossing in the entire franchise, $170 million. Like For an R-rated film, that's amazing. That's domestically. Yeah. It's like 300-some worldwide. What did you say, $170? That's, that's good. Yeah, it's great. That's, that's really good. You have so much of a good thing here with what you've tapped into that you will go to any lengths to prolong and extend this franchise. I'm going to call this the Jason Voorhees effect to the point where they killed off Jason in part four, calling it the final chapter. And he was so popular of a character in the 80s that they had to find a way to bring him back to the point where he was a zombie going to Manhattan, going to space, where it just gets ridiculous. I'm not saying John Wick's going to space or going to become The Walking Dead, but it's the same thing. This film has had the respect to treat life with realism through films one, two, and three. And I think this is... This is a jumping off point for for me. I this this should have taken place in the lobby of the Continental and John leaps out the first floor window. I can't buy that a man is going to leap off floor 15 and survive. Uh, you will find no argument from me on the 15th floor versus the first floor bit. And I think the, the but the, the the reasoning behind it I don't even know if it's just like it's it's trying to prolong the fr- it has to be like this. I could even give you the third floor because that's enough time for them to go down the steps to try to find him, to find him not there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Jesse, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I just, I, I, I guess, yeah, you're right. I, I know we want more. I know we want more of this. I know we want to see the finale with the, well, let me explain the end and I'll, okay. I'll wrap up my okay. hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, that's good. They go down to the lobby. The, they're cleaning up so they can reopen the Continental. They find that John's body's missing in the alleyway, and they say he's still out there, but he's been picked up by this this homeless man, part of one of the Bowery's partners, the Pigeon Man, and they take him to Lawrence Fishburne, who's kind of like in some like abandoned subway area, saying like, and he and that's where we see the aftermath. He's all scarred up and torn up. 
and he says, I'm pissed off, John. Are you pissed off? Like, yeah. I'm angry with the high table. And John, like, raises up, like, whatever compound fracture pinky he has. Missing his ring finger. Yeah, and says, and, and then he says, yeah, and the film ends. I better see John Wick Chapter 4 and he better be in a body cast because I just... I just March 21st, 2021. Yeah, I, I know. Date. As, with the box office take like that, with the, the, the great critical response of it, we're getting it. I just... I don't know why that was the decision. There's been some crazy things in 2019 on film, whether that be Serenity and <laughs> crazy explained time travel and Endgame, which the more I think about that, Matt, I send you a picture this week. Yes, what the what the fuck, man? You did. Like, yeah. but whatever. That Listen to that episode. I mean, this, I correct myself. I said March 21. It's May 21 of 2021 is John Wick 4. Mm-hmm. Look, we've both made the case that there's lots of places of divergence where the next fourth story could start. Obviously, it has to be the high table. I think him taking on the high table is reasonable. Yeah. that's And that could have been done reasonably in a lot of different ways other than this Michael Myers out the window, peek over the edge, Donald Pleasance. He's not there. Like <laughs> It's so Halloween. I'm glad you said that, yeah, too. It is, yeah, it is. Um, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. Here's what I would say. And... I'm not. I'm not trying to make you think differently or change your opinion on this. Yeah. I think it's a very. Yeah, you're right. But if we're not like raising an eyebrow mm-hmm. with bulletproof suits and dogs meaning more than life and markers that have blood-stained fingerprints and crucifixes that are completely undefined to give you passage to a foreign land before the person who gave you passage is stigmated. Mm-hmm. I, yes, it's it's all super, super surreal. Yeah. If you fall off a 15-story sky rise, do you really think the awnings are going to provide you enough breakage in your fall to keep you from snapping <laughs> as you hit the ground? Of course not. Yeah. But I also don't believe for my for a, a minute mm-hmm. that there's a fabric out there, a fabric that's enough to be in a suit that you can run and move the way you do. Mm-hmm. That's bulletproof. So I know, but yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's just again the suspension of disbelief, and it's just it's just visually how it came off. Yeah. It was this very CGI laden Keanu Reeves falling off this and smashing into things. It was, no, Jesse, you're right. I know. You're I, abs- you are 100% right. But for me, yeah. and the difference in this is I allowed, and I think I'm a bigger a bigger baby about this than you are most yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I allowed, you <laughs> didn't have to think about that for a minute, did you? Yeah. Um, I allowed myself that suspension of disbelief about 15 minutes into the first one because it is so I know. absurdly preposterous. And, and But that's okay. Yeah. If it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. I know. I just wish. Here's what I want. It was that was a really fixable choice that they chose to make. Yeah. Why 15 floors? Make it four. Yeah. I, I would. I wouldn't. Yes. Be, I wouldn't be going on if, if that was the thing. Here's what I want this franchise to not do, and then we'll get into our ratings. Okay. I don't want this franchise to overstay its welcome. That's a term I best use for television, mm-hmm. uh, for TV shows. The final season of Breaking Bad. Or the X Files. I think Breaking Bad got out at the right time, but like like shows that go on for The Walking the Dead, The Walking Dead, uh, nine, ten, eleven seasons. That fucking series is a zombie at this point. They, they you need to know when to go out on your high note. Yep. And, and this is bad in horror too. And maybe we're going to talk about this in the coming months. Hmm. But it's this pr- 
perplexity to want to prolong the franchise and Hollywood's all built around the franchise. We know that. But like, how far are you willing to go? And uh, to me, this is the, the whether that's Lionsgate or whoever, they, they want to take this as far as they can take it. Sadly, I think you'll go as far yeah. as their bottom of someone's wallet will allow you yeah. to dig. And that kind of kills my suspense. Like, I would like to kind of be in a world where maybe potentially John Wick doesn't make it out of these films like I kind of felt in film one. But now with a moment like that, I know he's going to come back for the next entry. It, it, it kills it a little bit for me. There's, th- Let's get to it, Matt. So our rating scale, rock gut, well, call, single barrel, top shelf. I'll go first since I'm kind of going on this little sure. tirade here. I don't even want to call it a tirade because I do like... That's a very fair criticism. Yeah, You're right. I do like this film. And for this franchise, in a nutshell, kind of just in retrospect, this is a solid trilogy. Like, this is really good. I really dig the first act of this film. It slogs a little bit in the middle. I like some of the action and the thing. And then, like, the end is a little troublesome for me. But, like, you know, for what it is, you know, I, I still prefer the simplicity of John Wick Chapter 1. And just kind of being introduced to a world that we hadn't seen yet. And I think it was exciting. It was like going to Disneyland for the first time. Like seeing Keanu again in a vehicle that suited him. And seeing him kick ass. Which we really hadn't seen since, you know, 47 Rome. Which no one saw. But like the Matrix. Like we hadn't seen this part of him in years. This was great. The action scenes were expertly choreographed. This world was so enticing. I thought the villains in that first film are like are really hateable and we want to see them go down. As the series has gone on, I think the ambition has increased as it should, but I think it's gotten a little outside the boundaries of a cohesive unit that the that the first film had. So, I think I gave uh chapter 2 like a call plus a uh, single barrel minus. This is Parabellum's a call plus ish. It's in the same vein for me. Oh, I thought you could do way worse. Than no, that. it's still a really solid. Interview. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, as you said a couple weeks ago. This is the best like like call plus film I could I could ever see for a slate of summer 2019, which we're about to get into. That's I was been, ready for well or something. No, like I can't. It's it's not that bad. Okay, it's just it's it's decision making element is called into question by myself. Fair. I think it's kind of on par with chapter two. I think one is still the benchmark. And I think it's just because that's just such a welcome viewing experience. But again, I'm not going to fault the trilogy. It's it's a fun little, it's a fun trilogy vehicle. I've loved talking about it in this cask, but uh, I can't put films two and three in the same vein as like a Die Hard and a Speed and Lethal Weapon. They're in a, a, a lower tier, but they're still expertly made. I'll leave it at that. Uh, I think you, that's a very magnanimous mm-hmm. ranking that you gave it. Save the Bedouin priest mm-hmm. that is the patriarch of the high table that is nonsensical to me. I don't, I, I see where you're coming from. I don't share the same, uh, I don't want to say contempt, but yeah. issues that you might have with with the final act of this film. Um what really works in this movie for me and why I'm going to give it a single barrel ranking is I think it's very uniquely delivered. And you have said so in so much as whether it be horses or samurais on motorcycles or the knife bit in place that's about 12 feet by 5 feet. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliantly crafted yeah. in what I'm going to argue by the time we got to the 2000s was a pretty exhausted franchise. That's action because there just was nowhere left to yeah. go. 
And this has relaunched it with an actor mm-hmm. that was also nowhere left to go. Yeah, he needed some relaunching. And I just think even though there are some tropes that are clearly ripped off mm-hmm. from other films, whether it be Game of Death or Enter the Dragon yeah, yeah, yeah. or the previous John Wick installments. You have to pay homage to what came before. They set the foundation for how this all works. There's very little in film that mm-hmm. pauses or gives me pause mm-hmm. and makes me question what might be. I can usually see it coming about hours before it comes. Because <laughs> yeah. we've done so much film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with John Wick and yeah. the evidence in this is the questions that we've brought up around the probably, I think, 55-minute mark. Mm-hmm. Is the different places this can go. I know the next battle is going to be John and the Bowery King versus the High Table. Ha- yeah, has to be. I'm curious to where that goes because I want to see where Sharon mm-hmm. and um, Winston. Winston and Sophia mm-hmm. and the Adjudicator and how all of those roles play out. Mm-hmm. I'm just intrigued. Yeah. And sadly, yeah. you're right. It's going to burn itself out. Yeah. But it's going to keep burning until there's green, until the candle's green. Yeah. But eventually there will be no more candle and we will leave, you and I will leave this franchise. Yeah ultimately yeah. really upset that that's how it finished. Yeah. But what? I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. Until we get there, what series has left you satisfied when it finished? Not The Sopranos. No. Are we talking about TV or film? Because I'll might, because i give you two. Yeah. I'll give you Six Feet Under. Okay. And, oh, wow. <laughs> that's the one that I can think of right I, now. I could make an argument for breaking. I know you, you come at a different place with that one, but like I felt like that, like... Five to six seasons with that. That was that was the proper run, and those are shorter seasons. Like it didn't go on for a decade. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. So yeah, j- just just be careful with how far you progress. Like oh at, no, they'll burn it out. It's it's gonna they'll, they'll blow it up. But it will happen. Yeah, I would just rather go out as like the comedian that tells like his high joke and then literally drops the mic and leaves the stage. Like I, th- I think your legacy's left a little more intact. Okay, good. You do realize that I'm management now, right? I'm not service anymore, John, so I don't go around shooting people in the head. I'm not asking you to kill anyone. I just need you to get me to him. To who? Your old boss. You want to kill Barada? I'm not going to kill him. I just need to talk. What could he possibly give to you? Guidance. Okay, Matt, the time has come. It's time for the flight and the unveiling of who the winner is for the top five highest grossing films of the summer of 2019. So what I'm going to read first is as of yesterday, and I looked at what was coming out in the next couple weeks because August is technically still summer 2019. There's nothing coming out that's going to beat these five films. So as of yesterday, these are the top five uh, highest grossing films of the summer. Okay. In first place... We have The Lion King with $484 million. Second place, Toy Story 4 with $422 million. In third place, Spider-Man Far From Home, $373 million. Aladdin in fourth place with $353 million. And then John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum in fifth place with $170 million. Huge summer for Disney. Yeah. Huge. That's the, the top four. Yeah. That's not even counting. Those are domestic totals. That's not counting worldwide because I think Lion King and Toy Story and Spider-Man all went over a billion worldwide. So, yeah, huge. You want me to read yours next? (laughs) Okay. Here's my five. Matt's five in order. And he had number one, Spider-Man Far From Home. Number two, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Number three, John Wick, Chapter Three. 
Number four, Yesterday. Number five, Annabelle. Annabelle. What was that movie called? Annabelle Comes Home mm-hmm. or something? <laughs> mm-hmm. So you had two of the five, but in a different order. You were the only one that had John Wick, but you had Spider-Man at the, at the top of the list. I'll re- I thought that... So the reason I did... I thought... I'll be honest with you. Like, I didn't even consider The Lion King when we first started. Mm-hmm. And I knew about Toy Story 4, but I thought that was really going to kind of limp across. And I know that limping across the finish line in the summer for children's movies is about 1.5 times cost. Obviously, I was wrong on both those. Yeah. The really disappointing one in that list for me mm-hmm. is Godzilla. Has to be. How in the holy F did... and it, Like, we did the whole podcast on this. Let's not rehash that podcast. Yeah. For everything that that movie wasn't, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of wasn't to it, I can sit here and still tell you I saw a lot worse this summer. Oh, yeah. It still wasn't, oh, my gosh, that was the word. But it wasn't. A, and I, don't like, know. I would actually tell you the other one on my list mm-hmm. that had a lot of potential that I I found myself a little bit more upset when I left that than I did Godzilla was yesterday. Mm-hmm. That movie had so much promise, and it ended up being... A schlocky, half-baked, semi-romance that was acted like shit that had no gravity or weight to something as monumental as losing the influence of the most popular rock band of all time with zero, and I mean zero, other than two other people giving a shit about it. Yeah. And the like, how that story... Mm -hmm. Ended up on screen the way that he did. Listen to me. I'm getting wound up here. Yeah. Because that movie, I walked out of that film and I was like, fuck that movie. But also too, why why was that a June release? That's like a November film. Yeah. Like that's a weird release date for that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I want to agree. So with yeah, you. I, I missed like I, I obviously the three huge swing and misses on that. But like, like if you the the biggest disappointment has to be Godzilla because you, you can't tell me you didn't think that was gonna be. Did you think that movie was gonna suck? No, that should have been. It should have been. I, there was parts I liked about it, but like it, it missed the mark for me on a little bit. Oh but, no! But like when it came out, were yeah. you like, "Oh yeah, that's oh, gotta kill"? Yeah, yeah, it had to. There's three monsters in it. Yeah. If you put it up against 2014's Brian Cranston Godzilla, which made a little over 200 million domestically, to this one that barely limped over 100 million domestically. Holy crap! How's that's that it. not a disappointment? It's a huge disappointment. I think they pushed Kong versus Godzilla back like six or seven months. Probably because of that. I don't think that's ever going to see the light of day. Uh, no, they have to because they, they they filmed most of it. It'll see the light of day, but like I think it, there's a lot of trepidation to be had with that one. Well, the P and A to promote that, it might just go straight to to like streaming or like, <laughs> no. You, I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'll, let's hear your five, Mister Winner, because I'm sure you did better than two of the top five. All right, my five. I'll read them in order. Number one, I had The Lion King. I'll explain why in a second. Number mm-hmm. two, Spider-Man, Far From Home. Number three, Toy Story 4. Number four, Aladdin. Number five, The Secret Life of Pets. And I had put and or the scary stories to tell in the dark. So five's out of there. Is that next week? That came out two weeks ago. But it's 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 <laughs> oh, no. it's not going to make what I thought it could have made. It's PG-13 horror. But it's a kid's book. I don't know what to expect from that. But that, that could have been a sleepy hit that I, I swung and missed on. Yeah. I picked a lot. There's a sickness in Hollywood and with Disney itself. To they're in this like 
utero rehash redo Mm -hmm. of the 90s nostalgia Mm -hmm. because those people that grew up with those films my generation they're all having kids they're taking their kids to see the movies they're going to see the movies because they loved it as a kids their kids are loving it because it's a kids film how is that not a hit like lion king was always the most popular of those so that's why i was like well if that if it comes out and it has to be that one has to be a hit I was banking on Endgame's factor, the Endgame factor for Spider-Man. And then to- Pixar always plays well in the summer. Like, even if it's bad, like, it still Wally. it still does pretty decently. Yeah. And then even for Aladdin, I think Aladdin, I think, made a lot more than I thought. But again, I'm not taking into factor that 90s kind of thing that is happening right now. And I'm not a fan of that. Like, I don't think that's a good way to progress as a film studio or film empire that Disney is. You're stuck in the past. And for a man like Walt Disney who really built an empire on originality, that's troubling. Like, that's very troubling. They got Mulan coming out next March. Well, I was going to ask you, when's Hercules coming? That's got to be in the pipe. I know they're doing a Corella DeVille film. Like, they're just, they're, they're in an odd place right now. And they need to be careful, too. Because there's no original fare in there at but all. You and I were... Uh, probably two of the only souls mm-hmm. that will criticize Disney. There's not a lot of I mean, I'll criticize podcasts out there banging on Disney. Yeah, and it's going to get a pass because of what you said. Yeah, like moms, kids, families, etc. To the movie in the summer it, with plenty of time. Absolutely, like, that's a double built-in audience. Sure, <laughs> yeah. right. It's everything that's nostalgia. Yeah, plus kids. I don't think you're going to argue the marketing tactic, but you can't argue like the ethical tactic of it i don't don't. it's i there's a lot of people out there that i think are just like really they're redoing that one like so let me give you an example of how right you are yeah (laughs) to reaffirm what you just said yeah when you and i wrote omega which is a superhero spec Mm -hmm. the obstacles that you and i ran up against were what what did everybody tell us it's not a built-in franchise it's not it's not a property that exists yet and we even went so far as to build an app to try to get a built-in audience that mm-hmm. did pretty well like yeah. around twenty-five thousand downloads at one point right yeah Isn't that about where we stopped counting so disney's proving just how right that is mm-hmm. because everyone that saw it prior is their built-in audience oh. so what you said it's family friendly it's the summer, so there's plenty of time off. You need something to do with the kids. Yeah. You're going to relive your past and share it to your children. Yeah. I mean, of course, Toy Story and The Lion King Slade. My question would be, mm-hmm. what happened with Dumbo? March release? Yeah, exactly, right? Because Tim Burton's seen better days? like Because the, the Jungle Book, which is one that I actually really... And I saw both yeah. of those Disney films as well. Yeah. I really liked The Jungle Book, but mm-hmm. it was just The Jungle Book. Yeah. I don't think those early 40s Disney films like Dumbo and Pinocchio and like Snow White are as popular as what came out in the resurgence, renaissance, was what they call the renaissance period of Disney. Because the original viewers are all dead, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? And I don't why. know if that my generation was really watching. I'm sure they did, but not like Little Mermaid right. and Sleep, or uh, Aladdin and Lion King and Mulan and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules. Like that, there was they they were on such a winning streak in that era. It's a head scratcher to me because as good as the first Frozen did, mm-hmm. and two is coming. Why is it? What's it going to be? Six, seven years between eh, six, five to six years between one and two, but in between was all the rehashing yeah. with actual 
live human animals versus animation. It's it's a very puzzling model, and they're admitting we can't come up with any new material either, so we're going to just reheat our old stuff. Yeah, that is just so. So my wife and I were at dinner last night, and I went on this whole rant, and I can't wait to talk about the guy. One day, he's got a big film coming out next July, Christopher Nolan. The reason I I like him as a filmmaker so much is he, more more than Tarantino, more than Fincher, the last film Fincher made was Gone Girl, that was seven years ago, Tarantino, or, or Nolan gets to play in a summer box office sandbox where he gets to do original content, $150 million films that people will go see... And he still progresses the medium in a form of originality that is just I dead in the summer. Well, you teased it. What's his film July? It's called Tenant. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, give it the pitch. It's uh, we we know nothing about it. We know uh, 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 Denzel Washington's son, who is in Black Klansman's the lead, Robert Pattinson, and uh, a few others. It's been pitched as North by Northwest meets Inception. Right. That's all we know. It's a mystery, and I get Matt. That movie is going to be a hit. Like. Who releases a World War II film in the middle of July and it kills? Yeah. No one else gets to do this. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's – he's lucky, but I'm glad he's doing what he's doing because for a summer that has an Aladdin, a Lion King, another Spider-Man sequel, a Men in Black reboot. The third installment of John Wick. Fourth iteration of Toy Story. We need more films like what he's doing. Like, new. You mean new. Yeah. Yeah. And who else is doing it? Well, I mean, there's probably some indie stuff out there. But it, the problem is... It's, here, it's not the same. He, no, it's not. And mm-hmm. here's what I'm going to tell you. Going yeah. back to yesterday. Yeah. If that movie was crafted in any way, shape, or form that was a solid movie, mm-hmm. it you know it's 20 to make, it's, let's say, and it brings home 110... Then we start the ball rolling down the hill yeah, on yeah. like independent, mm-hmm. aspect, four screen story cinema. But that fucking movie, yeah, it, it's what's that movie? I'm going to tell you this. Yeah, in this summer. By the way, you won by a mile, so I'm buying the next. So bottle. Matt's buying the next bottle. <laughs> I think there are two movies that did irreparable harm to cinema this year. Mm-hmm. It's that one, okay, and it's Serenity. In the calendar year so far, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because. Serenity took what we hoped was a franchise that is a whole cask, The Gun and the Girl and All the Great. And if it wasn't like dead, it's dead and now incinerated dead. (laughs) No one's touching any noir with that. I know. Right? Yeah. And then you take Yesterday, which could be a smart, independent, two-spec screenplay that's well-delivered. Who's making... No, it's... But you know what we're going to get now? Yeah. When is... Okay, we've had Elton John. We've had Queen. So we're waiting on... Bowie. Aerosmith. Bowie. Bowie. Yeah. Van Halen. You and I will be there for Van Halen. Yeah. Not. Not. <laughs> um, the Stones, like... Right. Like, and so that's going to be the next thing now. Yeah. That's the next thing. I bet you there's three in production there has to already. Be. No, yeah. for sure there is. Yeah. It's just weird. The summer has just left me so cold and so lukewarm and milquetoast and... John Wick and films like like that, those have been shining examples of like things I've enjoyed. But man, it's been a slog. It hasn't. This hasn't happened in a while. I always go back to the Godzilla summer, the original Godzilla summer, as the worst summer that I can remember. Twenty fourteen, yeah. This one's worse. Has to be. 
I didn't even really like Spider-Man. Yeah. I, there's not a bigger Spider-Man fan on the planet than this guy right here. Yeah. And I was really glad that film was over. Mm-hmm. And if you, again, go back and listen to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, I think that we could sum up summer 2019, maybe the whole year for the most part. Everything's just so palatable that it makes me sick. There's like, one saving grace left yeah. for me. And I hope it's ready or not. Yeah. I hope ready or not yeah. is what I want that to be. Mm-hmm. But let's see. Well, that doesn't save the summer. It saves a moment in the summer. All right. So this is the end of one cask and the start of a brand new one next week. So, Matt, have you made your hotel reservation yet? On tap for next week, we have Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. And this is going to be King's Landing Part 2. And this is all in lead up to... Probably maybe the most anticipated horror film of 2019 on September 5th or 6th, It Chapter 2. So we're going to talk about King again, King and horror. Matt, not since Alien do I think I've been more excited to talk about a film than The Shining. There is so much to talk about here, not only the differences between film and novel, but Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker, his propensity to be just a total insane person on set, and just the crazy, maybe urban legend-ish set decoration instances that are hidden and riddled throughout The Shining, not to mention Jack Nicholson's brilliant performance. There's so much to talk about, and I'm so excited to, to do this one. I think what's going to be fun about this movie is comparing where we come at film, mm-hmm. and that is film appreciation, maybe more so than hard film theory, because you and I are not the two that will sit around and give the most obscure reference to each other so that we can um, bathe ourselves in our own accolades of film knowledge of Greek cinema from fuck all that, yeah. whatever, right? Like. I'm really looking forward to talking about this on a base level because I don't know if there's been mm-hmm. a film that's been more bastardized through film critic theory mm-hmm. than The Shining. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And I would actually tell the people that are the, the diehard Rye Smile fans, yeah. it might be time to crack open a book this week mm-hmm. and at least read the last half of The Shining. So, because there are some monumental differences between the movie and the film. And I'll just I'm go mo- sorry, movie and the book. Yeah. I'll just go ahead and say this right now. I think the film is infinitely better than the novel. And I know that's like Jesus Christ blasphemy by King fans. They think that's one of his best books. I could not disagree with you more. But you want to know why? Tune in next week. I'm going to tell you why with the breakdown of this film. I wonder if it has something to do with shrubbery. <laughs> I think it just has a lot to deal with, like, what does it take for a man to just totally go insane? And the difference between that and seeing ghosts and being haunted. I think there's a big difference between the two, and I prefer one to the other. We're tackling all that next week on Rice <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I better get a good bottle this week. There you I? go. Yeah, you better get a good bottle. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. I want to toast Keanu Reeves, uh, David Leach. Derek Kolstad and Chad Stileski for just giving us a pretty solid by uh, all around action film franchise that's been a blessing in years past when like we really don't get a film trilogy like this and it's been fun to see Keanu back the way he has. Hey man, I'm excited for Bill and Ted Part Three. 
<coughs> whatever whatever that's going to be. For sure you are. Yeah, so... I love the parallels between his career for different reasons to Robert Downey's... Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr.'s career for different reasons. Robert yeah. Downey Jr. was drugs and criminality. Keanu Reeves had a lot to do with soul and preference and bands. It's so great to watch those guys yeah. go from what was to what wasn't to back to what was. Keanu Reeves... Mm-hmm. I read an article this week that he is top five mm-hmm. in grossing actors per payday on Saturday. Now, The Rock is number one. Yeah. Will Smith is number two. Keanu Reeves, depending on the next two films, could get all the way to number three. with what. And, and you know what? Okay, so I'm not here to celebrate how much money that guy makes. Yeah. Is whatever. Yeah. But I, he does it in a way mm-hmm. where he gives his entire salary to like the gaffing crew. Yeah, it's awesome. He's a legitimate righteous dude. Yeah. He's a righteous dude. Yeah, I'd like to have a drink with him one day. So I'm again to him. Amen to that. God bless you, Keanu. Thank you to listeners. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We will see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum, is property of Summit Entertainment, Thunder Road Pictures, 8711 Productions, and Lionsgate, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers.